Cinema Duel, a podcast that normally features myself, John, and my friend Chris talking about a couple of movies around the theme of our choosing. Uh, however, Chris uh, needed to go smell the summer flowers and frolic in the fields uh, and spend time with his family uh, while I stay inside while my province burns to the ground. Uh, so I thought I'd uh, uh, watch some movies and invite a friend along to do it. Uh, returning to the podcast from, uh, I think it was last year's episode on Karen Kusama and a previous horror episode, we have Mr. Jeremy Hunt here today. How you doing, sir? Hello. I'm good, man. Thanks so much for having me back. Uh, and I'm really sorry about the burning province that, uh, that is deeply distressing. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 by the time of this recording, I think we've sort of hit what is hopefully the end of it or at the very least a reprieve, but Oof. it is, I've shown you some of those maps, uh, yeah, and they it's are, nuts. they are depressing. Yeah. 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 Um, what is less uh, depressing is the subject for our episode today, and <clears throat> I am going to have to issue, the, I think this is the second episode in a row where we've had to sort of issue a uh, a disclaimer around assumed pronunciations uh, mm. uh, of people's names, where we are going to pick a pronunciation, we're going to stick with it, and if... Uh, and if it's wrong, then you can either helpfully clarify it, it to us privately or shut your damn mouth. Um, <laughs> today, we are talking about a couple of films by American filmmaker Toby Hooper. Um, most notably, uh, directed, of course, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. But the man, uh, as Jeremy, I'm sure, is about to enlighten us, uh, has a long, varied, and fascinating career. Uh, and I'm not going to lie. I have not watched a single movie of his prior to uh, prior to prepping for this episode. So, Mr. Jeremy, I know you've been on a real Toby Hooper mm -hmm. uh, run lately. Why don't yep. you tell us a little bit about your about your experience? Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, so I, I'm I'm fascinated by him because, as you said, he's an American filmmaker. Uh, I am a huge uh, John Carpenter fan. And I spent a lot of time with his films, spent some time with, you know, uh, other notable American, uh, horror filmmakers or folks that tend to spend a lot of time either in horror or sci-fi. Um, you know, George Romero, uh, Wes Craven. And I feel like Hooper is one of these guys that's referred to as along with those three, probably, you know, the four big names in, um, American horror for a long time, but it hit me that as much as I love the two Texas Chainsaw films that he did, um, Poltergeist, um, uh, I think those are probably like his three most well known. He also did the Salem's Lot, uh, miniseries based on Stephen King's story. Um, it, I realized, I don't know, a few weeks back that I hadn't really seen a whole lot of his other films. Um, I'd seen one called Eaten Alive that I think was right after or right before the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and then Invaders from Mars, but I hadn't really seen a whole lot of others. And he has, you know, a pretty, um, pretty solid filmography. I mean, we're talking probably close to about, uh, 12 films. He's done, or, uh, excuse me, 20 films. Um, he's done, you know, multiple TV episodes. Um, and so part of it was like, I just wanted to familiarize myself with his work. I wanted to get a better understanding of the sorts of themes that run through his movies. And so that, that's really what led me down this path was like, you know, he's so notable for some of this stuff, but then why don't, why am I not more aware of his other, of the rest of his work? So that, that's kind of what, what led me to this. Um, and then when we were talking about the possibilities for this episode, that's one of the reasons why I threw his name out was like, and he's made some other stuff that's like really weird and seems like it's gone sort of um, uncelebrated or I, I don't know. I, I feel like, again, to use those other three guys as examples, I feel like folks are pretty familiar with their big hits, but also the stuff that's become more maybe cult classic type stuff. And I don't hear that much dialogue and that much discussion around Hooper. And so I think that's part of what led me to that. Have, have you found sort of like on balance that in your sort of exploration of sort of the, the, the stuff that hasn't maybe stuck around mm -hmm. uh, as much, like 
are you finding a like a good solid batting average f- for those or does it tend to be like up, ups and downs that kind of stuff he's probably got um five or six films that i would consider kind of stone cold classics and then probably you know another eight or nine that would probably fall into sort of that cult film category where it would not necessarily be like a go-to necessarily if you were just trying to introduce somebody to his work. But if you wanted to have somebody go a little bit deeper, I think they would get something out of it. And then a few, especially towards the end of his career where, um, whether it's a lack of a good script or a lack of budget, it's like, Oh wow, this was not, or maybe even studio meddling. That's something that I've seen in a couple of places so on the, on the whole, I'd say I think his reputation is deserved um, because in even some of the lesser films, I think he's still poking at a certain sort of um, rot, if you will, within maybe Western culture broadly, but definitely specifically American culture. Um, and I think that comes through even in some of what would probably be considered his lesser films. Um, and even in those, I think, you know, it's his his work is uh, worth engaging with. I hope I'm not about to hang you out to dry by asking you to <clears throat> elaborate on that concept of rot as we transition to talking about our first movie sure. uh, for this episode, which is going to be 1985's Life Force. <laughs> just a weird film like it's just a great film uh exploring (laughs) space and vampires and um i i think i would start with the uh the allure of something that's ultimately destructive i mean i i think that that you know at, at its broadest base that's one of the key themes that you can pull out of this you know it's this idea that you've got this group of Astronauts, for those who haven't seen the movie, you know, it's a group of astronauts that uh, come across uh, this massive sort of like spaceship structure uh, as they're um, like embedded basically in Halley's Comet. Uh, they board it, they find some creatures that are already dead. And then come across these three life forms that just happen to have the shape and feel and look of uh, three humanoids, a, a woman and two men. And um, lo and behold, end up bringing them back to Earth. Or they end up the spaceship. Something happens to the spaceship. And that's part of the mystery of the movie. Uh, and these these humanoids get brought to Earth. One of them is this woman that is, uh, I think, spends the entirety of the movie naked. <laughs> yep. And there, and so, you know, everyone that comes across her, it's almost like a space siren, even though she doesn't really say much, everyone is drawn in, uh, by her, by the, by the way she looks. Um, and it ultimately leads to each of the individuals, just about to a person, uh, has their literal life force sucked out of them by her. And so they are destroyed and it leads to a certain level of destruction. Ultimately uh, it's in London, right? I think, or right outside London. That's, that's kind of why I was like, I hope I'm not about to trap you because the, this, this movie is mostly set. Like there's some American aspects to it, but it is actually mostly set in London. And I think that that's probably due to Toby Hooper wanting to like, in like i mean i've i've read enough clips uh to to know that he was hoping to do this his own uh higher budget tribute to the hammer horror films yes uh which like the reason i picked this movie for wanting to watch was because uh chris actually has a review of this movie on uh on the website for his hooptober marathon and he yeah yeah and he and he got, sort of goes into a lot of detail around how this is specifically meant as a uh, as a tribute to sort of that British sixties yeah. and seventies uh, horror. Uh, for, for, and which when we did our last uh, uh, when we did our last uh, horror episode, he mm-hmm. uh, gave me the gift of uh, Hammer horror movies as yes. as, a, as a wonderful thing, which. 
I think that for for, for myself, I, I like your idea of like the being drawn to something that will cause your destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, this could potentially be its movie, the movie's like strength or possibly its downfall mm-hmm. is that there is so many different plot threads and modes of being in this movie. Like the first chunk of the movie you definitely think you're watching like a throwback to like 2001 or Mm -hmm. planet of the apes type sci-fi right yeah and then it after after the mysterious things happen which i had to go and watch the beginning of the movie again yesterday morning because i could have like i thought i might have fallen asleep where i was like wait why are we not in space anymore yeah (laughs) i thought I thought I missed that part, but no, it's literally just the film cuts away and all of a sudden we're now on earth and, mm-hmm. uh, there's reference to a ship that we didn't hear from. Uh, we never actually see any of the carnage that happens. It's just sort of briefly alighted to, and then all of a sudden now they're in possession of these three naked human like bodies, yeah. uh, perfectly preserved. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that section of the movie sort of, what feels to me the most, what I recognize as being the most Hammer-esque type movie, which is a uh, couple of stuffy British, uh, or well, I guess the one guy's American, but uh, yeah. there's, you know, some erudite British man is going to uh, teach us the rules of how to hunt for monsters in a very procedural sort of like, we're now going to hunt Dracula or we're going to hunt, you know, the Demigorgon or right. you know, any of those kind of monsters that you'd see in those movies yeah um you talk you mentioned romero uh in sort of the pantheon of directors that hooper gets compared against Mm -hmm. to me the 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 finale of the movie feels very romero-esque because absolutely uh, after they do most of their we're trying to hunt down all of the you know they're trying to hunt down the space vampires uh when it is revealed that they have in fact been completely outwitted and outsmarted. And in fact, they are just causing chaos in London. The last chunk of the movie is basically a full on, it Mm -hmm. feels like a full on zombie invasion movie, even though it's not technically zombies. Oh, 100%. Yeah. When that part hit, I was like, uh, wait, this, how, what's happening here? (laughs) Cause people are just being like jumped and attacked. And it's like, I guess vampires could be this aggressive, but this feels like a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, well, you were distracted by Patrick Stewart making out with that one guy uh, because he was possessed by the naked vampire lady. Uh, She was actually off doing, she was actually causing like all kinds of hell and you're just sort of catching up to it. Yeah. Um, I guess, I guess my question for you is, is like the, is there too much in this movie? Well, perhaps not enough. Uh, (laughs) I, I would say for me, and again, just my sensibilities, I love, I love bonkers films. And so for me, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm along for the ride. I mean, there's definitely a piece of it where it feels like, okay, where did some of the connective tissue go? And to your point, like it, it definitely feels like genre wise, we're kind of jumping around to a few different types of movies, but I don't know, man. I'm not, I'm not hypercritical of it. And I, I, it, to me, it feels like, like the perfect sort of Saturday matinee, Saturday afternoon, like B movie where you're just like, man, I'm along for the ride and it's, it's weird and it's kooky and it's strange and I'm, and I'm here for it. Um, there's enough sort of, uh, you know, you talked about the British, uh, the British cast and the hammer influences. There's enough scenery chewing going on that to me, I find it enjoyable. Um, and then it's just, you know, the, the special effects are like strange enough. I mean, the, the parts where like the life force literally gets sucked out and, you know, desiccated bodies that are kind of half alive in certain situations, but maybe not in others. I mean, that's fun. Um, but it does make, you know, again, it does make me wonder, like, it, it, it feels like a, it, it could have been a film that might have gotten away from him, if you will. 
Like, I, I just, it'd be curious to know, like, what was the, the full scope or the full vision of it from the get go and how much of that was actually executed on with the final product. And if, and if he nailed it on all fronts in terms of what he was hoping to do, then man, more power to him. But it definitely feels like there are pieces here and there where it's like, hmm, we either needed a little bit more or, um, yeah, maybe there could have been a better transition from one from one scene to the next, that kind of thing. I even found like I di- I didn't watch the like I, I j- when I watched yesterday when I uh, booted up a second time I only watched like the first thirty minutes just to really get my bearings straight. Um, yeah. But even just sort of like establishing like who are the protagonists that I'm following because because at first like if you wa- if you're thinking of like I guess another movie this would be good to compare it to at least in the beginning which especially given that dan o'bannon worked on this is is alien yeah. right and, and yeah for sure y- the first time you watch alien you don't know that it's going to be ripley you just are like here's right. a here's an ensemble piece right and mm-hmm. one by one and then eventually like it, over time it becomes obvious who you're actually sort of following throughout the 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 whole movie but i I would actually think that i would probably benefit from watching this a a second time because now i know who are the two protagonists who are the two people i actually need to be following and then the other people who are definitely giving off scenery chewing protagonist energy uh but but are not actually (laughs) like important i can basically just sort of like categorize them as like okay that's because you're right i i think that I wouldn't describe most of the acting in here as bad. Uh, I like yeah. most of the effects. Um, it's it's just that it, it's. I, th- I think at one point you uh, offline you talked about it as being like a fever dream, yeah. and there is something that if you just sort of give yourself up to it, um, yeah, and and not try not to have it be consistent, then I think that. The, the the qualities that are more readily apparent do shine through a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think to your point, exactly. Like, I don't think I realized my first time through the whole stuff with, uh, Colonel, uh, Carlson, Steve, uh, Steve rails back. He's basically, he's basically the, you know, the U S kind of the American representative. He's the, U, the, the American astronaut that's part of this, like realizing like, Oh, so much of this happens because, you know, he has like the amnesia and the stuff that have like there, that part of the plot that feels like it's probably was intended to be the through line feels a little buried until you realize, like you were saying, what's going on. So it makes me wonder if, yeah, with multiple re- rewatches, if that piece would become more apparent or you'd pick up on certain clues maybe that were more subtle. I don't know. In the intro. Uh, part of this conversation you were talking a little bit about uh in some cases there being instances of like studio interference Mm. um i've been thinking about that as a possible like and and if you've done more reading on this you can just pretty much just tell me i'm wrong but uh, the, the thing that was the thing I thought was interesting about, at least in this case, was that if you watched the version on Tubi, the same version that I did, mm-hmm. then we watched the longer director's cut. Um, yeah. Which, if and, and that's a, which which is to say that this is probably the more coherent version. Yeah. Uh, if they're putting true. stuff in that was that was cut out beforehand, and it still feels fairly, <clears throat> there, it, it, at points it feels like there are there are chunks that are missing. Yeah. Um, and this is a this is what like two hours approximately. Yeah, yeah, like about not, two hours. Yeah, the the version we saw was about two hours long, so it's not like it's it's not a light film as far no, as runtime anyway, right? That's true. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and it and it makes me wonder. Um, it it makes me wonder. So let's see. This was what year did we say? Nineteen eighty four, nineteen eighty five, eighty five. Yeah, eighty five. Yeah. Like how the sensibilities of certain types of storytelling have changed over the years. Because there's there are little things in here, like towards the end, right? I think there's a discussion or sort of a little revelation that this is not the first time that earth has been visited by these creatures. And that part of that is where like the legend of vampires even come from. Like if this were being told today, 
that would probably be like a 20 minute flashback sequence, you know, full with like, you know, ancient space vampires visiting during, you know, the Gothic era or visiting during, you know, coming during the, the, you know, 12th century in, you know, uh, medieval Europe or, uh, the dark ages or whatever the case may be here. It feels like some of that is just kind of like not almost an afterthought, but it's like, okay, we have these fun sort of like world building elements, but we're just going to toss them in as things are moving. And so it, it does make me wonder if there's an aspect of that, where that's also coming into play, where the sensibility is, is different uh, in terms of what the focal points are. Like some of the movies you and I like to sometimes talk about uh, the movies that you like to defend like yeah. there is something I can see in them. Like there's something yeah. and, and this and <laughs> like, if we're going to compare it to say something like, Oh, I don't know. Like the star Wars prequels, like <laughs> there, I, I'd say that this has a lot more going for it. Uh, sure. In a, in terms of like acting performances for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Here's what I would compare it to. I think the, the more we talk about it, I've, I've also been along with the, uh, the movies of Hooper. I've been slowly moving my way through, uh, the movies of Albert Pune. And again, with um, a disclaimer about pronunciation, I hope I'm not butchering Albert's last name, but he's a uh, Hawaiian born uh, film director who just passed away, I think last year. And I, I was not super familiar with his stuff uh, before he passed away, but I saw a lot of people who I respect, a lot of film folks that I follow on Twitter and elsewhere talking about his work and for sort of, more mainstream uh, audiences, the the one thing that probably broke through for better force <laughs> into the broader cultural consciousness was his um, Captain America film years before, obviously the MCU. And it's not a great movie. I mean, special effects, but his uh, whole filmography is marked by what I like to call a high concept, uh, low budget approach to filmmaking. He was constantly struggling to get, um, you know, workable budgets for his films, but that never stopped him from creating these movies that when you just look at them on paper, you're like, Oh, this could easily be a hundred million dollar, you know, $200 million project. I mean, this could easily be massive budget or wherever we're at now. I, I lose track of what constitutes a big budget movie now and what, what doesn't. Um, but he's got one that uh, called radioactive dreams. It was actually an influence on the fallout, uh, game series. Someone with the, the wherewithal to do that could easily cherry pick that film and say, we're going to do a reimagining of this with a massive budget and special effects. And it would probably work like gangbusters. I use him as an example to say, to me, Life Force kind of feels like Hooper's sort of high concept, lower budget, like Pune approach. And I don't know what the budget was on this. It may have been a lot for the time. Um, But it feels like, yeah, there's a lot of ideas in here that they wanted to play around with and have fun with. And they basically did. And it's kind of like you're either... You're either in or you're out, I think, in a lot of ways. Like, you're either kind of down for whatever they're going to do or, you know, you... And and no criticism. Like, if somebody comes at this and is like, man, this does not connect with me, I wouldn't be... I'd be the first person to be like, yeah, that's fair. That's fine. Like, take it as it is or don't. I'm not going to fight you over it because it's weird, it's idiosyncratic, and it's, it's definitely... A strange movie. This is probably ends up like landing as it as it being like I'm I'm I enjoyed watching this movie. Sure, I think that there's some there's some cool stuff going on there, and I but I I also I also think it's weird. Like again, I mentioned it beforehand. We've been talking of like there's so many things happening in this movie that the fact that again Patrick Stewart is possessed by the vampire lady uh, mm-hmm. for like a ha- like for a small chunk of this movie Captain Picard himself <laughs> is under the thrall of the naked vampire lady and yeah. we have not really talked about it and we didn't even talk I don't think we talked about the fact that they can sh- at one point you realize oh they can shapeshift like 
Right. They completely. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're possessing people in some cases, but also right. changing shape in others. Yeah. Which is just crazy. I mean, you know, and this is the way the, the ridiculous way my brain works. I don't know why I just made this connection, but it makes me think of um, one of the Critters movies in that series, which that series is just bonkers, and I love it too. But at one point, I think it's it's either in the first or the second one. I can't remember which. It's revealed that there's like a couple of bounty hunters that are hunting down the Critters, and these bounty hunters are from space, and they can shapeshift. I mean, they literally like look at someone. And then, like, completely, like, change their shape, and uh, I don't know. Maybe, so, and I think that th- those came after this, so who knows? Maybe this is an influence on that, but... So, yeah. Space vampires, zombie-esque attacks, possession, a mental health institution, shape-shifting space vampires, uh, the weird desiccated creatures that are on the space the the space structure in Haley's comet the idea that Haley's comet has brought the space vampires to earth before and that's how we have vampire lore on earth i mean it's just it's really all over the place <laughs> and honestly the more the more i verbalize it i'm like oh this is why i like this film that's <laughs> like it's just it's just bonkers enough to where I'm like, yep, I'm in. I don't, I don't care. This is exactly the sort of thing I love in these sorts of movies. So, but well, I'm hoping that that energy can uh, carry us uh, through, and we can continue to vibe on the insanity uh, as we move on to our second movie for today, which is spontaneous combustion. <laughs> And this movie was picked by my good friend, Jeremy. So, Jeremy, why don't you tell me a bit about picking this movie? Sure. Okay. So, uh, if it's not clear already, I'll go ahead and make it super explicit now. I love weird movies, and you you nailed it perfectly, uh, referencing a previous discussion that we had had. That this, to me, very much feels like a fever dream movie. It just, there, there's a weird logic to it, or one could probably argue lack of logic to it. Um, this is one of those movies that I just recently saw for the first time, um, going through Hooper's, uh, filmography. Uh, and I think what's different for me, the interesting juxtaposition with Life Force is that even though I hadn't seen Life Force until, I don't know, a few months ago for the first time, I was at least aware of it. Like, again, kind of like we talked about earlier, Hooper sort of has like this echelon of his movies where, you know, there's the, there's the renowned famous stuff. There's the stuff that's probably the tier below that, you know, solid genre type stuff. Um, and then there's stuff even maybe below that where it's like, okay, I don't know. Uh, what kind of movie I'm, I'm up for. And so to me, um, Life Force was sort of, I didn't know what to expect necessarily, but by its reputation, I was like, okay, one way or another, this is probably going to be a fun time. Like, I'll find something in this to enjoy. Spontaneous Combustion was completely unknown to me, and I went into it with um, no frame of reference for what I was getting myself into which I kind of love sometimes, especially when it's a filmmaker that you think you kind of know or understand or you're getting a beat on. Um, And so, yeah, spontaneous combustion. I was like, haven't heard of this really before. It stars Brad Dourif, who I absolutely love. Um, And the sort of the plot line of it about some guy that, you know, literally has like a power of, you know, pyrokinesis and, who knows where where else this is going. I was like, this is enough for me to get hooked. And then when I watched it, by the time I was done, I just, my immediate thought was like, how is no one 
talking about this movie. Like how, like even from a cult movie standpoint, like not like, oh, this is as good as Texas Chainsaw Massacre or his masterpiece. Like just how is no one talking about this film at all? Because this feels like it is primed for like a vinegar syndrome or an arrow video or a scream factory. Like it feels like it's meant for sort of a reevaluation or perhaps an appreciation for the first time kind of thing. So um, when we were talking about what we might be able to discuss uh, in this episode, that's, that's why for me, this was kind of an immediate go-to. And I want to give the, the film uh, the most generous credit i can which is to like in the first the like the film you're right it like <laughs> i i will explain i'll expand on later <laughs> why my attempts to summarize the plot of this movie are even worse than life force <laughs> but broadly speaking uh brad duriff uh has uh com- comes to learn that because of uh experiments that his parents went through um during the beginnings of the atomic era, et cetera, et cetera, that he has uh, uh, the power of pyrokinesis and mm-hmm. he doesn't feel especially great about that. He doesn't know what to do with it. And rightly so who would. Um, and, uh, and there seems to be a government conspiracy, a, a conspiracy of some kind by some people to mm-hmm. accomplish some ends that involves him. Yes. Um, the, the, the first section of the movie, like, like the first section of the movie is about his parents um, going through this uh, this this testing process uh, mm-hmm. of they're going to be given they're going to be testing out this this bomb shelter uh, and be given this injection of this medication that's uh, and then there, and then a, a nuclear bomb is going to be detonated that would normally kill them but we're going to test to see if this is something that will um, uh, this is something that we're going to see if the the, the the shelter will hold or the medication will keep them safe. Mm-hmm. And the way it's filmed and presented is very picturesque 1950s. You're uh, like a back to the future, like the way that yeah. the way that the Marty's parents of back to the future describe the 1950s versus the reality of like what it actually is, mm-hmm. the sort of idyllic way. And, and the way that it um, has this sort of weird, like the atomic age is beautiful. It's wonderful. It's great. And we're in the fifties. Like mm-hmm. to me, like David Lynch hits that in like many, like 30 ish years later, we'll basically come back to that when he comes back for twin peaks season three, mm-hmm. um, like almost perfectly. And, and, and I mean that specifically, but that's a recurring theme throughout. Like the first chunk of this movie is really good impression of David Lynch. Yeah. That, that to me is like the, like, and I, and I, so like, as as a opening gambit to this movie, I'm like sold the hell out. Like I'm like, yeah, let's go. Yeah, and it and and to your point, it it the way it's shot, it looks that way. I mean, it looks it, it's it's kind of classically shot in terms of the the compositions of the shots, the sets, all of that. And you know, then at one at a certain point, everything just gets kind of flipped, and you're like, oh no, this is more of a modern movie modern you know by way of you know 1990 1990 yeah it's the it's the we're in space for a good chunk of time and i'm already here i'm already loving it and then all of a sudden we're not in space anymore like why are we not in space (laughs) i love that's funny that unintentionally that's that it's mirrored in both of these movies that's really really interesting yeah i i feel like there is less like I, I feel like there, this idea I don't feel is as overstuffed with mm-hmm. ideas as Life Force. I think mm-hmm. there is a bit more like once you transition to present day, um, with with Brad Dourif sort of coming to better, worse, whatever you want to call it, understandings of himself. Yeah. That, like it pretty much sticks with that for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Um. Like you talked about loving Brad Dourif, and for for me, there's when it comes to some horror movies there are some people who i am a fan of because i'm fans of their uh appearances in more mainstream nerd things like uh, sure. 
um, Jeffrey Combs in Deep Space Nine across a like he shows up all throughout that series. And so that's how I ended up seeing Reanimator. Um, mm, OK, cool. Um, and and for, and for and with Brad Dourif, I mean, his I, I have come to later appreciate uh, Deadwood. But for me, he's Wormtongue. Right. Yeah. And 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 those both of those guys, they get their they get these jobs because of their reputation from the the kinds of movies they make. But for me, it was like the reverse where I see them in these nerd things that I like. Mm-hmm. And then I go, OK, well, now let's go back. You you tell me that Brad Dourif's in a movie where he's constantly exploding. Right. Uh, <laughs> Sure. Yeah. I, I, I and I, I do. I, I really enjoy Brad Dourif in this movie. Yeah. I think he's his his high intense anxiety around the whole thing that no one's telling him or really no one's really straight with him about mm-hmm. what's happening to him or why. Yeah. Uh, his central performance, I think, is probably the only thing really I can latch onto in this movie. Yeah. Um, because I'm going to ask you a question. Other than the, there's one lo- there's one speech at the end where a guy in a wheelchair says, "We wanted to make a weapon, uh, and you were that weapon." Yeah. Other than that, can you try to explain anything about what the conspiracy is as far as how they are monitoring him mm-hmm. and what they hope to accomplish by planting people in his life to monitor right. him? Okay, so my interpretation of it was, yes, there's that sort of reveal at the end or towards the end where it's like, you know, we we wanted to use you, uh, we wanted to harness your powers, that kind of thing. But my broader read on it was just, um, we have created, and this is actually a discussion I've been having with another friend recently, like, films and art that comes out of the atomic age um, that's informed by the atomic age and the idea of destruction, mutation, deformity, these sorts of ideas, you know, to me, it feels like granted by this point, again, in 1990, probably a, a bit dated, but it feels like there's an aspect of critique of the atomic age that's present. Um, but also this sort of, unseen government control or oversight by way of the the fact that everything about what once the layers start coming off it's this realization of like can this guy believe anything that he's been told about his own existence and about his own life so he doesn't even know his own name right yeah Uh, there's a point where it's like oh well your name's not really i think is it sam or something and then it's like no it's it's actually david yeah um so to me, that's the bigger sort of thematic through line here is like the government has created a essentially a freak of nature. They've created something once again that they cannot. He's kind of like an A bomb in, you know, in, in micro, if you will. Like they, they did this over here and they weren't careful enough with how it impacted human beings then. And as a result, this is the legacy of this guy that, um, yeah, has been lied to his entire life, and and it's it's literally worth it for the government to essentially see what happens to put all these other sort of like players around him uh, in the different roles to essentially keep an eye on him, keep tabs, and then see you know when he's going to blow essentially. So it's not perhaps the most. <laughs> compelling of uh, storylines but to me that it's it's an interesting it, it, it's it's an interesting play on some of those themes essentially um and i will say i think in terms of my like i said my initial reaction getting to the end of it was i watched it and i was like you know this came out a few years after the original scanners but i watched it and i was like oh this feels like a sort of spiritual cousin to, uh, you know, this, the original Scanners movie, or even, um, I don't know if you've ever seen, I think it's, I need to double check the title, but I think it's called Shocker by Wes going back to, you know, our discussions about the big four, uh, Shocker's a, a Wes Craven film where, 
um, this uh, inmate who's on death row gets sent to the electrical chair, um, and rather than fully dying, his essence gets converted to an electrical shock, and so basically he becomes a serial killer who can travel into people's homes via TVs, via radios, via electrical systems. And so there's an aspect of this that I guess it really doesn't come into play uh, except towards like the very end of the film where like David's power gets, you realize like, Oh, he can transmit his power through certain, well, no, I guess it does happen. Sorry. A little bit earlier in the film where you can see him transmitting his pyrokinesis. So I think that's the other piece of it for me where when I start seeing connective tissue or potential influences from other films. I'm like, oh, this is kind of fun riffing on what those films were doing too. So sort of playing in the same playground, if you will. I like the scanners comparison. Um, my big thematic takeaway uh, for this movie is sort of the, 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 the younger generation suffering the consequences of the previous generations, uh, you know, dealings with atomic yeah. energy like yeah. we're doing this stuff and now the consequences are being visited upon our children in this case yeah. like that's not a metaphor that is like very literal um yeah. which like hey congrats on like having substance yeah. even as much as that substance uh to to the movie itself like i'm uh like i, I do want to give it credit for that yeah. um and, th- and that's actually a theme to tie it back into Hooper's larger body of work. That's actually a theme that, that you see pop up a lot in his films, whether it's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre films. I think there's an aspect of that in Poltergeist. Poltergeist. Um, it, it's definitely a theme that pops up in uh, Mortuary, which is one of his uh, later films. Um, the question of family, the question of legacy and heritage was handed down from one generation to the next. I think that's a, that's a, a, a really strong through line for some of his, for some of his stories. Aside from obviously the, the, the intro sequence, the, the Brad Dourif, uh, going throughout the movie, sort of the other thing I, I, I clocked as someone who has <clears throat> in a whole lifetime of watching and like internalizing a Christmas story was the appearance of Belinda Dillon. Um, as Oh the, Yeah. Yeah, because she plays the, I think she's, I think she's supposed to be the older version of the nurse that's there. She's the one who to- basically is able to tell him about him, who he is, and his parents, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. It, it, um, was she the the cigarette smoking nurse at the beginning, and then comes back I, again, or maybe it's the same character. Maybe it's not her in that sequence. I, I, yeah, I think it's supposed to be the same character, but not necessarily the same. Yeah. Actor. Yeah. 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 No, the, that was wild seeing her in that. Because she actually has a, a, she actually affects an accent for that uh, particular role. So it wasn't, uh, it, it, it's, the, and and also just, and again, maybe this, this was made in 1990. So that would have been a few years after A Christmas Story, but her, like her, her hair, whether it's makeup or, or not, uh, is like, she's costumed to be a much older person. Right. Um, I do think it speaks to the sense, uh, you know, and whether it's conveyed well or not. And this would be an example, like we talked about with life force, how the version that we saw was probably, uh, in all likelihood, like the director's cut or the extended cut or wherever the right term was, you know, I, I told you, I think in a, a conversation we had offline that based on what I saw about this, there's a rough cut out there, some version of a rough cut that, existed before the studio got involved. So maybe this aspect of it, you know, played out better in that version, but there is an ass, there, there's a piece of this with her character and with his, um, was it his girlfriend's character that play that, that at least attempts to play with the insidiousness of whether or not he can even trust the people that are supposed to be nurturing him, the people that are supposed to be caring for him or loving him in a romantic way. In the, in the example of, um, his girlfriend, I, I, I wonder if part of the intent in a version of this film and, you know, wherever it existed in development before we got to the final result 
was more of this sense of this, again, the, the family dynamic of he's lost his parents. He largely doesn't know who he is. Here are some people in his life who are supposed to take care of him. And even them, he, he, even then they can't be fully trusted because of, you know, the, uh, the workings of the government behind the scenes to just continually kind of gently poke and prod and manipulate him into being what yeah, he ultimately becomes. Cause his girlfriend ends up being in a similar situation as him, right? Where she's, yeah. she has similar kinds of mutation or I'm not yep. sure if that's the right word, but yeah. she's, she's, she's both has similar like, effects as he does but has been placed in proximity to him by the mm-hmm. government so she's also part of the conspiracy yeah uh, his her uh, his ex-wife is uh connected to her new husband uh, her through her and her guy uh they're connected to it as well pretty much anyone who he sort of has any kind of established relationship with yeah. is <clears throat> pretty much in on it in on yeah. what couldn't tell you but they're in on it <laughs> It's basically a weird Truman Show situation. <laughs> Which, now I'm just now I'm just reimagining the Truman Show if he uh, had uh, the pyrokinesis powers. <laughs> oh, that needs to happen. Anyway, yeah. So, yeah, it's just um, yeah. I feel like a lot of and and again, sort of. Th- part of the through line maybe of some of Hooper's other stuff is yeah. Who, who can you trust? Where, where is that trust founded? What happens when that trust is, is dismantled? Um, and then also just like all kinds of, like there are some weird set pieces in this where is it in his, his girlfriend's apartment? Like the whole thing is like, uh, like art deco neon, like set pe- like the the phone, the radio. There's certain stuff in this, just from an aesthetic standpoint. And I wonder if that was meant to be like a juxtaposition or a contrast to, you know, the 1950s aesthetic of the beginning. But there were just certain scenes where I was like, oh wow, they really went for it with the set decoration here. Um, I mean, John Landis gets. Uh, brutally murdered. I was just about to say John Landis shows up out of nowhere <laughs> and gets fried. Um, very, very, very satisfying moment for sure. Absolutely. 100%. Oh, yeah. And the whole thing with like the the DJ who is sort of like an art bell kind of like conspiracy guy or like s- sort of right, a, the, a, the, a psychic the, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I that's a, about that. That's yeah, a whole, that, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I struggle to even verbalize what did happen or what I'm supposed to make of it. Like it's, yeah, they, they, they talk to a psychic who with, again, again, if this was made today, there'd be a whole like episode about how the DJ came to have a psychic powers. And I don't, I guess I don't want that, but yeah. Well, and, and I feel like, you know, sort of if we were to break it, if we were to break down the story, uh, piece by piece, I mean, it really, that, that guy kind of functionally serves to essentially confirm Brad Durst's character's suspicions about himself, I guess. He's like, this is somebody that I've listened to. I know he's a psychic. He's somebody kind of like peripherally in his life. He's like, if I can't trust the other people around me, maybe this guy will know what's going on. I've heard him help other people. Maybe he can help me. That's kind of the function of the character. But then, yeah, you just get these shots of Landis's character through, like, I guess through the air, not through the airways. I guess it's through the phone lines. Like, cause he calls him needing to talk to the DJ after the DJ hung up with him. And so, and then he just, he's in his way. He gets mad. And then the pyrokinesis just, takes off and i think if i had to have any sort of uh closing thoughts around how i feel about this movie it is that i watched it for free on youtube Uh, (laughs) and 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 no one because like again anyone who has interest in this like any corporate interest in protecting their copyrighted ip gets that stuff gets taken down fat like quicker than you can imagine and the only time that it doesn't is like 
you see now on Twitter, people uploading whole movies uh, (laughs) because Musk fired everyone who could uh, possibly be monitoring this stuff. Right. But like the fact that this movie has been put up onto YouTube in its entirety and no one has thought to take it down. um, It's, it, I, I don't think it speaks to its quality. I think it speaks to its forgottenness, like you talked yeah. about at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and there's, and I probably don't hold it in maybe the same esteem that you do, but like, there's, sure. there's still stuff there. Yeah. 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 And I, I mean, again, as we've said uh, multiple times, there there's a lot of stuff. When I dive into either a, a, an actor's work or to a, into a director's work, there's there's a lot of leeway that I give them. And um, yeah, to me, I was like, I just want to see and understand what sort of movies Hooper was making as his career went along. In part because I, I mean, the the first two Chainsaw Massacre films are two of my all time favorite horror movies. I think they're just incredible pieces of work. Um, but I don't want to limit my understanding of his work to just that. So that's where, when I dove into this, I was like, no, nah, we'll, we'll just see where it takes me. By this point, I had already seen what I think is the worst film of his <laughs> catalog. So having dipped uh, to that low level, anything beyond that feels like a win. And so when I watched this, I was like, man, this is just weird and I'm here for it. So... <laughs> I like that. Lowered expectations. <laughs> yes. They work wonders. <laughs> and now it's time for our film recommendation segment. Jeremy, what have you got for me today? Yeah. Um, okay. So in keeping with, um, with Hooper, if you've never seen, let's see, it's 1976. It was a film he made after, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's called Eaten Alive. And weirdly, it also features uh, prominently a killer crocodile. But this one is shot, um, I think it was entirely done on a soundstage. So the film has weirdly, almost like a stage play kind of presence. Like it feels like you're watching something. Um, yeah, like almost a theatrical production that's been filmed. Um, and so it's very weird, has a dreamlike quality to it. Um, and basically the, the idea of the film is that there's this guy who runs sort of like a boarding house. And from time to time, he feeds one of his residents to his pet murderous crocodile that, you know, he lives on like the bayou. And so it's just, it's, quintessential Hooper. It feels like an interesting companion piece, you know, being set in sort of like the deep South of America, similar to, uh, Chainsaw Massacre. Um, so I'd recommend that. Or if you want to lean into, uh, the space stuff that you liked from life force, I'd watch invaders from Mars, which I don't know that Hooper ever really made like a kid's movie, but from my memories of it, it's sort of like a weird riff on like an E.T. sort of thing where basically these, and I think technically it's a remake. I think it's a remake of an old, like maybe fifties or sixties sci-fi movie, but basically like these creatures come down and it also involved uh, a screenplay from Dan O'Bannon. So more, more continuing themes. Um, but basically, yeah, these kids, I think get abducted and get taken on board like this, uh, Martian spacecraft and they have to figure it out and, uh, how to escape. And the, the creature designs are just great. Like there's a, like a weird thing that looks like a walking brain with a mouth and no arms. I think there are a few of those. So it's just, again, it's weird and, uh, just a lot of fun. That does um, sound fun. Yeah. And then last, uh, if I could throw in a third in honor of uh, Ray Stevenson, who just passed away, may he rest in peace. Um, there's a 2017 uh, French-Spanish sci-fi movie called uh, Gold, uh, Cold Skin that involves a couple of guys who are tasked with uh, running a lighthouse on a remote uh, island, I think in the South Atlantic. And so it's this great sort of like horror 
sci-fi, um, sort of like creature flick. So, um, really well done if you're in the mood for that sort of thing. And, um, a great performance by, uh, Stevenson to boot. So there we go. Those are some, those are some excellent recommendations. Um, my, uh, movie going, uh, diet of late, uh, has been the films of, uh, Buster Keaton. Uh, I had not ever really watched, uh, anything from Buster Keaton before I mm. aside from maybe like the occasional one off, uh, like random clip of like the, when he's like standing in the, the house side falls on him just sure. perfectly. Um, <clears throat> but I've been going through, uh, a bunch of his shorts, uh, and, uh, and a, a chunk of his features as well. And first, like it, it is a, like, there's, there's, there's comedy bits that are silly that work. Mm-hmm. But more even than that, his physical performances, um, the stunts that he pulls off, mm. like a hundred fucking years ago, like, are, like are, are are impressive to this day. Yeah, and like the, that, the, for people to do the kind of shit that he was doing now, uh, would people because when you think of stuff like jackass when you think of all the crazy Mm -hmm. shit that tom cruise does in his emission impossible movies or Mm -hmm. even like going back to like the days of jackie chan Mm. like though the the impressiveness the danger and then you know there's movie magic of course involved in 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 all that stuff but like the 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 coordination and just it, it blew my mind and as i've been watching these movies um just sort of the audacity uh, mm. in sort of how he made his movies and how he would put himself often in harm's way. But even when it's like more conceptual bits, like in Sherlock Jr., which is the like that's for for movies I'm going to recommend Sherlock Jr. There's a sequence where he goes into a movie that's being projected and like there's a there's like he's. He is is a projectionist uh, in the projecting room. People are watching the movie on the screen. He walks into the movie. Um, and not only does he walk into the movie, he does uh, various like flips, tricks, movements, whatever, as the as the back as the background changes behind him. That's um, wild to like different sceneries, but he is always in the in relative position to the same thing. And for him to like have done that in film's most earliest stages is, is just bananas. Um, So yeah, my, my recommendations are Sherlock jr. And then, uh, I do definitely recommend, uh, uh, the, some of his shorts as well. Mm -hmm. Um, the cook is one that he did with, uh, fatty Arbuckle. Uh, just, and actually, if you don't want to necessarily like one of the things I like about his movies is that they're short, like mm-hmm. none, like most of them are like, like the longest ones tend to be just over an hour. Um, okay. but the, but even with, especially with his short movies, like his, you know, 20 minute short movies, those tend to be like the most concise. And so if you want to have like pure uncut, cause the, the <laughs> thing is, is that the, when he tries to do stories, sometimes they work mm-hmm. and sometimes you're just waiting for the big sequence, the big finale, impressive sure. showpiece, right? Sure, sure. But like with with but with a lot of his shorts, they are like you're just getting the good stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. <clears throat> and that's so, really cool. and 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 almost all of it, like it's almost all public domain. Like there's there's stuff on Criterion you can watch. Uh, there, uh, I think it was Kino did a box set of all of his short films. But almost all of this is on YouTube as well. If you just want to wow. watch it. Yeah, I've never spent much time with his with his work, so I, I need to dive in. That sounds like a lot of fun. I I will say that I do need to add the necessary caveat of all of the good time vibes I have do occasionally come to a crashing halt uh, when you get into uh, the not frequent but occasional uh, use of blackface. Oh gosh, yeah. I, as soon as yeah. you started saying something, I was like, oh, I think I know what's coming. <laughs> It, it, like for because again for me like what what is amazing is how how much of this translates to being completely like on point relevant sure. enjoyable for modern audiences to to have right yeah and that is true 
right up until the blackface happens. And you're like, oh, okay. Oh, gotcha. This is when it was made. <laughs> right. Yeah. Ugh. But your willingness to deal with uh, that as it comes, yeah. it's, it yeah. is like, hell, even just watch like a, I'm sure someone has like a super cut of insane Buster Keaton shit. Um, that mm. that would be worth your time for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, awesome. Jeremy, I appreciate you uh, coming and chatting again, filling in for Chris. I'm glad that we we're able to harness your uh, uh, growing uh, th- thoughts around uh, Mr. Hooper and hopefully oh. helping you sort of forge that into something more thought out. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. You know, the, you know, the thing I'm trying to say. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Editor John breaking in here to say that I forgot to ask Jeremy to plug his stuff, and he is a man of many talents and interests and projects, so I asked him to record a little thing and end up being a bit longer of a thing, but uh, any of the things he's about to recommend, you should go check it out. Now over to Jeremy. There's kind of a whole list. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I'm in the middle of a series of releases intended to be four parts uh, that are spinoffs actually of Kohela's second album, uh, Black Kite Broadcast. This is kind of a pandemic project seeing its way to light, if you will, where, uh, I just started working and experimenting with a bunch of different, uh, beat makers and, uh, little mini synths and that sort of thing during the pandemic and, you know, had a lot of fun with it. And then by the time I was done between those experiments and then digging through old, uh, unused Koheleth material, I realized that there's probably about three to four albums worth of things that we could release. And so I just thought, oh, this could be, you know, what, what, what would be a fun way to do this? And I decided that, um, it'd be a lot of fun to basically break these up into, uh, coherent, uh, segments, basically coherent collections and, assign one of the fake bands from the Black Cat Broadcasts album, uh, assign a, an, a band, excuse me, per album release. So that's what this is. These are basically saying, all right, what if four of the bands from Black Cat Broadcasts actually released, you know, full length or EP length, um, uh, albums <laughs> and, you know, what might they sound like? So the first one already came out earlier this year, uh, on Euphoriatic Records. That one was uh, by the band, in air quotes, uh, the band Territorial Pissants. And then uh, there's another one from the band H.R. Geiger Counter that will be coming out, uh, I think, sometime soon in the next few months. It's it's done. It's finished. It was submitted to the label that will be putting it out. Uh, but that'll be the next one. Uh, from there, I'm wrapping up the third one with a friend of mine. The, these all, most of these, or at least two of them so far, ended up, so I guess 50% of them thus far have been uh, collaborations with folks outside the band, which has also been really exciting. Uh, and so HR Geiger Counter is a collaboration with um, my friend Andrew from the band Wahila in the UK. Uh, love those guys. Check them out. And then this next one after that, uh, the third one is, uh, the band Splatter. And that, um, is a collaboration with my friend, uh, John Paul, who does a lot, a lot of lo-fi hip hop stuff that I just love. And so that's kind of what that one is sort of staring into. And then the fourth one is, is the one that is the least complete. It's, it's pretty far along, but, uh, still needs to be done. And, uh, that one, uh, will probably be, uh, me and Mike again, just working on wrapping that one up and <clears throat> putting the finishing touches on, uh, beyond that, there's actually a, uh, a new Koheleth release that's, uh, shaping up. Um, this one has kind of come together in fits and starts, uh, increments, some one-off tracks that we've recorded over the past few years, uh, and some other pieces that have just come about through different circumstances. So real excited about that one. Um, don't have a time frame for a release or anything on that yet. And there's still a few finalizing, uh, details that we need to finish up with it. Um, but it's, it's real close. I'd say it's probably 80 to 85% done, uh, including the art and the plans that we have for that. So that's really exciting. 
Uh, and then lastly, I guess I would just say that there's a lot of community stuff I've been working on as well from an artistic standpoint. You know, I really believe strongly in the power of art, uh, arts communities, um, and art, artist circles to, um, hold things together and to give us, you know, places where we can find, uh, I mean, it's cliche, but where we can find community and support. Uh, and so with that, I've got, <clears throat> excuse me, the, uh, toxic waste buzzkill, uh, discord group that I started, of gosh, I don't know, a few months back. I forget how long it's been running, but that's been a really cool place where, uh, folks can just come, uh, sort of a reprieve from social media and all the toxicity that seems to be there. And, um, literally where people can just chat as adults <laughs> about what they've got going on in their lives, whether it's creative stuff, whether it's family life, uh, shit that's, you know, uh, we're all dealing with, but it reminds me of the old message board days. Um, not that those were free of toxicity either, but they certainly in retrospect compared to where social media has gone seem to be, uh, at least in my experience, a lot more life giving. And so that's what I'm hoping, uh, despite the name, <laughs> That's what I hope that Toxic Waste Buzzkill will be for uh, the folks that are a part of it. So if anybody's interested, just, uh, you know, shoot me a message on uh, Instagram or Twitter, uh, wherever we might be connected online. Um, send me a message to Go Health accounts, uh, and I'll be happy to send you an invite there. Uh, and then with that, there's also uh, Channel Minus Six, which you and I started as a YouTube channel to feature our video projects, has uh, also grown now into a, uh, a once-a-month uh, radio broadcast where uh, with Camp.fr, uh, based in France, where I feature, honestly, a lot of, again, in keeping with the communal themes, a lot of my friends, um, music and, um, it's an hour long slot and it's just a lot of fun putting together these different playlists. Uh, and so that's, uh, another offshoot with, um, channel minus six now. So channel minus six now incorporates the YouTube channel, the radio show, and oh, also a sub stack, uh, where I'm, it's not weekly <laughs> by any means and I'm trying to get better at it. Uh, but a, um, basically an email newsletter where, again, it's just an opportunity to feature what my friends are doing and uh, hopefully drive folks to their accounts and, um, uh, yeah, where they can go and support folks either by listening financially, by buying the music or the art, um, or just being more aware of what's out there and uh, ways that they can jump in. So I think that's everything. Sorry, that's probably a lot to <laughs> cram in. <laughs> uh, to the segment, but, um, you know, as always, thank you. And it's always a blast to hang out and chat with you. In the meantime, you can find anything that we do related to this on uh, cinemaduel.com. And, uh, we'll be back next month to talk with Chris about whatever Chris feels like talking about. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.